0: I really waited too long to come to Vancouver. <laughs> Thank you. Amazing. So,
1: uh, a quick rundown on, on this evening's event. Uh, there's a couple microphones set up. We will be getting to questions from you guys a little later on. We're going to chat for, you know, however long we feel like it, but we want to make sure there's time for questions after that. Uh, so good to see you both again.
0: Yeah, my am
1: so I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, kind of this series of events, and I thought today we'd start off in a different direction it's all about me. No. Uh, It's actually a question that I think both of you are going to have really good input on. I did a debate a couple weeks ago against a a preacher who seemed to have not only no understanding of science, uh, but no appreciation for it, didn't care, didn't care if he was fairly representing it. As a matter of fact, I think there's a chance you might have uh, stood up and accosted him at some point because he literally stood in front of me and said, oh, that evolution stuff, it's not like anybody's ever banged sticks and rocks together and got a puppy. <laughs> he said this twice during the debate. The first time, uh, we're in a debate structure, so I'm trying not to interrupt. You know, I need to follow the rules of debate. And the second time, I just halted and jumped right in, and I was like, you're right, that's never happened, and no scientist has ever portrayed anything like that happening. And the, luckily, we were in a high school, and the students seem to get it. But how do we work past not only just willful scientific ignorance, but this? We seem to have built communities where they, we haven't instilled any appreciation for it or any appreciation to treat it reasonably. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's just throw up a straw man and call it nonsense.
2: I don't often quote Tony Blair. (laughs) But he said, education, education, education. Um, There is staggering ignorance of what evolution is all about. And... Hello?
0: (laughs) I think we're we're living in a simulation right now, and it's, it's failing us. So, so, Richard, what do you do with this underlying misunderstanding of of the role of randomness in evolution? Can you you inoculate um, us against that problem?
2: Mutation is random, only in one sense, actually. Mutation is random only in the sense that it's not directed towards improvement, specifically. It's non-random in other senses. Uh, Natural selection is quintessentially non-random. That's exactly what natural selection is. Anybody who thinks that you could possibly explain beauty and the elegance of living things by some kind of random process would be stark raving bonkers. Anybody who thinks that we think that has got to be stark raving bonkers. Of course it's not random. The whole point of the scientific enterprise in this case is to find an escape from randomness, is to find a a solution to the problem of how you get these staggeringly non-random things which are living creatures out of the laws of physics. And, and that's, what, that's what we're about. I mean, to explain that by postulating a creator, now that is uh, in almost resorting to randomness. That's saying that, that complexity, non-randomness is another word for complexity, comes into being spontaneously by sheer luck. God mm. just happened to be there. What natural selection, what evolution does, is to explain how you get there from simple beginnings, which are easy to understand, and how you work up gradually, 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 up a kind of ramp of improvement until you get to complexity. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're trying to escape from randomness, and natural selection is the only escape that anybody has ever suggested that will work.
1: It strikes me, I was was thrilled that students... This was in a public high school, although I believe it was a charter school. Uh, because it's, it's going to be unlikely that a regular state-sponsored public school is going to invite me in to debate a preacher, uh, although it was a debate class. But I was, in, I was inspired that the students seemed to catch on to what was going on, so at least I, I'm, I'm a little optimistic that they were reasonably educated on the subject. But how do we deal with adults, this minister? Uh, he's not going to go back to school. He's not going to pay any attention Uh, What what did he actually
2: say? I I didn't quite hear the the final word of what he said.
1: He portrayed evolution as if scientists were saying that you bang sticks and rocks together and you get a puppy. That sort of ridiculous (laughs) over the top. (laughs) That's going to be a meme, that face right there.
0: (laughs) I'm just lost for words. um, (laughs) Although truth be told, the the details of procreation are almost that strange. (laughs) If you've ever had a child, and I mean, it it could not be more alien. If we watched a horror movie and this is how the aliens produced their offspring, it could not be made stranger than it is. (laughs) That was not an anti-sex tirade, by the way. That was just. If anyone
2: thinks that the great majority of scientists are so utterly idiotic and naive that they think that that the way you get life is by banging sticks together and stones together. I mean, doesn't it give him pause to think that actually the vast majority of scientists have uh, a fully coherent theory that fills library shelves and volumes of books about it. If it was that simple, if we're just banging sticks together, that's not the way it would
0: work. But what do you do with the, the underlying improbability of the whole process getting started in the first place? So the yeah. to- tornado going through a junkyard yeah. and assembling a fully working 747 the, argument.
2: The, the first step, the, the origin of the first self-replicating molecule, the origin of the first gene, that was a necessary first step before natural selection could get started. And that is a step that nobody has yet solved. There are quite a lot of theories about it. Um, we may never know for certain, because it happened a very long time ago. Uh, we know the kind of thing that must have happened. And that is a big barrier. That is one of the main questions that remains. Once that's happened, that, that was a fairly simple start. Once that's happened, then the hmm. whole panoply of life, the whole branching, complexifying beauty of life, then gets, then gets going. We do need a theory of the origin of life. But once that starts, then everything else follows uh, with great um, logic and persuasiveness. Hmm.
1: And of course, until we get to the point where we have a good understanding, uh, then the answer that we should give is we don't know yet, rather than pretending that we do and that right. there's some, you know, godlike Soci- governing exactly. force. Exactly.
2: Scientists, to, uh, yeah. We, 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 we like to say we don't know because that gives us something to do. <laughs>
1: It's incredibly good job security for the curious. (laughs) One of the things that troubled me is uh, having all of us have dealt with religious-minded individuals in debate-type formats. Uh, Here's a preacher who knew nothing, Uh, and it was uh, proudly on display, and there's a part of me that says, should this individual be allowed to speak to children at all? And yet, I have to defend this idea of freedom of expression, that people get to share their ideas. And that puts us in a place where we're constantly in a battle of ideas. How badly, how badly informed should somebody be before we just stop paying attention to them and work on the people who perhaps are reachable?
0: Well, the problem in that case is that you're, the preacher represents in the US what? 35 percent, 45 percent, depending on what his convictions are uh, of the population. So it's, it's not, you, you have to, you can ignore the preacher, but you can't ignore the fact that a significant minority, and, and on some questions a majority of Americans, hold just patently absurd ideas. So it's the ideas that really matter.
2: He and knew that, nothing, but he was proud of knowing nothing, it, seemed, it sounds to me. Well, a, a lot of us are ignorant of lots of things. I mean, I'm ignorant of very many things. And I'm sure you are as well. Um, but we don't I've never heard it put so nicely. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> but we admit when we're ignorant, and we don't um, try to pontificate about things of which we know nothing. Whereas he, he was doing exactly that.
1: In a way, it wasn't so much that... I don't think he thinks he's ignorant. I don't think he's proud of his ignorance. I think he thinks he's convinced he has the right answer and that we are all engaged in a scientific fairy tale. So there's, there's like an extra layer of smug superiority mm. over the top of it where he gets to dismiss the work of countless scientists uh, that have taught us the best current understanding of the diversity of life. And he gets to shrug it off with sticks and rocks.
0: Well, and if, we, if we ever have to convene gatherings like this in hell, we'll know <laughs> we did something wrong. I'm, I'm pretty sure a part of that
1: was in hell, yeah. but I maintain my composure.
0: I mean, that, that really is the thing. That, that's what completely changes the equation. The moment you believe you are certain, or even just have very good reason to believe that this life is just a, a way station on the way to some eternity that you could get very very wrong or very very right depending on what you believe just it is that that being your master algorithm that makes a mockery of every pretense to human knowledge no matter how technologically useful it is it doesn't it doesn't matter if we cure cancer with some future biology and prayer has never worked if you believe in heaven and hell that That really governs everything, it seems.
2: In a way, I don't think I mind his believing what he believes. What I mind is his thinking we believe what he thinks we believe. Yes. (laughs) Because how could anybody be so stupid
1: as to think that you could... He simultaneously presented a straw man of evolution and evolutionary scientists and anybody who fell into that, you know, I I accept reality. Hmm. I'm going to straw man you all with sticks and rocks. Now, we we can laugh at it, and, you know, if you feel like laughing at it some more, by all means. There's been lots of discussion about uh, how best to engage on these. How much, for lack of a better phrase, how big of an asshole should you be? How much pushback should there be? How seriously should you take them? And quite frequently, someone will come up and present the idea that there are sophisticated theologians, that this preacher that I had a debate with is in one category, and some other academic erudite theologians are in another category. Hmm. Is that the case?
2: Well, Well, there are sophisticated theologians who accept evolution, of course, and have no problem with that. And so our argument with them is a quite separate argument. Um, I, I, I have met sophisticated theologians who believe pretty astonishing things, like believing literally that Jesus turned water into wine. Um, And I thought sophisticated theologians had written all that stuff off and said, oh no, that's just metaphor, that's just a nice story. We don't really believe that anymore. But I have spoken to very, very highly qualified, sophisticated theologians, highly educated, uh, they accept evolution totally, but yet they think Jesus turned water into wine and walked on water and rose from the dead and was born of a virgin. Um, All very unscientific ideas, and still they call
0: themselves sophisticated theologians. Well, first we should acknowledge that sophistication is better insofar as it means moderation and less of a commitment to the most dangerous ideas. But my problem with with so-called sophisticated theology is that no one ever admits where the sophistication is coming from. It's coming from a loss of faith in specific doctrines. I mean, it's getting hammered into them from the outside. So, so it's coming from science and, and, and a modern conception of, of ethics, uh, you know a, a universal conception of human rights, a, a sense of how unseemly it is to think that anyone, by virtue of being Born in the wrong place is going to spend eternity in hell just because they didn't happen to hear the the good word from their their parents. So that so they 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 lose their purchase on those dogmas, and yet they retain this conviction that that Jesus was born of a virgin or was resurrected and will be coming back. And, the, and those are just the it's it's a it's a God of the gaps argument in certain cases, but it's it's a you know, there's just certain questions where. Science hasn't yet closed the door to belief, and so they're putting all of their chips on those those questions. We
1: we might have slightly different views of what a sophisticated theologian is,
3: yeah. uh, which
1: is probably a testament to how it's actually not sophisticated theology, but obfuscated theology. Uh, because when I hear someone say, "Oh, you know, you take calls on the atheist experience, and you get," people who couldn't present a reasonable argument at all why don't you take on real sophisticated theologians and my answer is I always tell them to call in here's the phone number they can call in whatever week they want mm. and they'll say well you know oh but here's this you know academic who's presented this particular version of the of the ontological argument the moral argument and it's you know you've got ray comfort the banana man on one hand and they pretend that there's something superior with regard to argumentation on the other and at the many years I've been hosting the show and doing debates, what I find is what gets labeled as sophisticated theology is the exact same thing. It's not like the arguments of these sophisticated theologians are any more sound than
0: the arguments of Ray comfort. It's just that they're better speakers. They well, but have a they're better actually less sound in one way in that they don't. So the, the, the belief system is still anchored to a belief in revelation. They're still fixated on the text, but... They have ignored much of what seems untenable in the texts, and they don't have an argument about why that's okay. Because if God wrote any of these books, and nowhere in the book does God say, well, you could ignore the first half because now I'm getting to the good part. (laughs) It's it's all God's words. It's actually a less principled position than fundamentalism. That's, it's that's why it's always, in my view, unstable in the face of fundamentalism, because the fundamentalist always has the advantage of saying, listen, I'm going to read the whole book, I'm going to take the most plausible interpretation of it, I'm going to read every word as literally as possible, and that always begins to fixate on more divisive, more doctrinaire, more irrational ideas. At least with the fundamentalist,
2: you, you know what you're arguing against. Yeah. You're not yeah. arguing against a wet sponge.
0: No, there's a there's a there's a uh, it, it seems perverse to say it, but there's actually more integrity to the most fundamentalist position because it, there's there's simply one irrational move, which is the the belief that this book is perfect in every word. But the moment you believe that, well, then it, it it is in fact rational to try to connect all the dots as as reasonably as possible.
2: But sometimes they really don't say anything. They say something like, "Well." God is the ground of all being, um, right. or God is the essence of isness, or
0: something. Um. Well, I have a soft spot for that kind of... <laughs> ah, <argument>. yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't like the, the theistic version of it, but this is perhaps the only, the only argument I can adduce in favor of, of so-called sophisticated theology, which is there's an experience that people have, you know, Christian contemplatives, say, or or... Um, they' really contemplatives in any tradition, and, and have had for millennia, which does start, it does provoke those sorts of noises from people. I mean, The, the problem is you, you, you get far enough into any of these contemplative traditions, and everyone begins to sound like a Buddhist, and then they, you know, if you 're in the 14th century uh, in Christendom, you know, the, the, the Inquisition shows up at your door, uh, as they did to Meister Eckhart, who happily died of natural causes just in time. But there's, there's an experience that people have of you know, losing their sense of self, say, and feeling at one with the universe or the world, uh, or having some kind of ethical, just a full ethical reboot of their hard drive where they feel love that they didn't know was possible, right? A kind of self-transcending love. Yeah, I'd enjoy that, I think. If I- yeah, well yeah, so I, I'm not uh,
1: I'm not sure I would we can have I'm not sure that it's a good what what is what is it that's a good thing about
0: losing one's sense of self? Well, that's a that's a big question. Well when you when you look at just the mechanics of your own suffering, when you look at just what self-concern gets you psychologically, you begin to you can begin to feel that most of your your suffering is not actually it's not directly tied to bad things happening it's tied to all this whole machinery of self-concern you know anxiety about the future and regret about the past and worries about what people said of you or think of you or will think of you and so much of our neurosis is taking place just in the in the conversation we're having with ourselves and that's all predicated on the legitimacy of this starting point of feeling like there's a self riding around in the head who, who is carried through from one moment to the next in life, that you are, you are the same person you were yesterday. So the, the thing that embarrassed you yesterday that you're now remembering and now feels terrible is the, the psychological continuity there and the, the durable continuity that seems to mandate that you suffer over Precisely the thing that you were that you were su- suffering over yesterday, because you are that same self carried through moment to moment. And just that, to have
1: everybody watch Frozen and you can just let it go.
4: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that yes.
1: Because I I, yeah. I I think the sense of self is actually something that's incredibly valuable. That you know, our, we have a, a a preservation motivation. We have a a desire to understand the world that we inhabit. That mm-hmm. is, it, it may be indeed the case uh, as I've as I've argued and others have that there's no such thing as altruism in a true sense, but that you could have altruism from a purely selfish standpoint uh, yeah. and still do
0: good. Yeah, but I wouldn't call it, I mean, that, that begins to play with the boundaries of the, quote, self. I mean, so so if, the moment you begin to feel that your selfishness extends to everyone being happy, right? Because you actually care about everyone, right? And you feel better when you see people smiling rather than you know, weeping if you extend the circle of your self-concern to everyone, well, then that's not normal selfishness. That's, that's you know, sainthood in, in a If I'm doing it sex. because I
1: feel good when people smile, that doesn't mean I necessarily care about them. It means I might care about that good feeling that I get.
0: Yeah, except the I get part is vulnerable to inspection. I mean, the sense that you, there's an I who's appropriating that in every moment is... It's just, it, 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 it's a project which... Can be accomplished in a moment, or or, or you can fail to accomplish it after many years of looking. But there's the sense that there is a. It's useful to to define what we mean by self, because most people don't feel identical to their bodies. So when, when I say when I say the self doesn't exist, I'm not saying that people don't exist. I'm not saying that you know nobody's here, and you know this is all an illusion. And and there are contemplative and religious and spiritual traditions, they can sound like they're saying something very much like that. I'm, I'm saying that the, the sense that we all have of being a subject in the head, riding around in the body as though it were a kind of vehicle, right? Because I mean, this really is most people's starting point. They don't feel truly coterminous with their bodies. They feel like they're in their head and that you know, their hands are down there in some sense. And that sense of being a subject in the head is vulnerable to inspection. You can lose that sense. And on one level, you can, you can just be identified with your body. I mean, that, that is actually progress. Simply to feel like a body in the world is different from the way most people feel. Most people are, are kind of—and con- this is what we're running into— most people are common sense dualists. They feel like the mind can't possibly be identical to the brain. The mind is something altogether different, and it just feels like it's in the head as a kind of there's a sort of locus of attention that's emanating from the head, but this body is a machine that can malfunction and it's changing over time. It's clearly not what I am, and I am probably a soul then I'm probably a spirit. I can probably drift off the brain at death and that's and that sense and all the ways in which that sense can be played with by fasting, or prayer, or meditation, or psychedelics, or getting crazy ideas that you find emotionally very animating, sort of adventures you can have in dualism are part of the problem here. Because you- Adventures
1: you, in dualism should be yeah, the title of your next book. Right. Yeah. I did not know if you want to jump in on that I at all. I have nothing to contribute. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I sit here and I listen to this, and I, and I, I think there's like a four-hour f- fascinating-for-me conversation. You might, mm-hmm. might not think so much, because I have no problem with the idea that the mind is the brain. Uh, but I
0: know that there are people who do. But, but, do, my, but, but it doesn't feel that way.
1: I know. I know yeah. it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. And, I, know, and I, I, I don't know that it's necessary, and I don't know what the right path is. I don't know that, that for example, um, losing this sense of self could be a great thing.
0: Well, I mean, w- or one maybe thing not. I would add is that I, you lose it all the time because it, it actually isn't there. I mean, that's this is, it's, you are losing it all the time. How can you, you are, lose something that's not there? It always seems there retrospectively, but when you're really paying attention to something, you know, you're, when you're so-called lost in your work or you're lost in some athletic task or you're just lost in thought, like you're, you're actually, you're, you're thinking about something and you're not aware that you're thinking, this sense of... of our own kind of central presence in our heads is constantly being undercut by attention being diverted to something out in the world or to some some experience, and you can become increasingly sensitive to how it's being interrupted well,
1: in I would love to get to the truth, and I, I love the fact we're on the pursuit, but irrespective of what the truth is, Richard, something like consciousness, which we still, some would say we understand and some would say we don't, I, I think we don't, hmm. but how... What would be the evolutionary advantage in the process by which we get to consciousness as we as we have it, as we seem to have it, that that might distinguish us from other animals?
2: It's a it's a big mystery because uh, you could build an animal which did all the sophisticated things animals have to do: hunting for food, um, avoiding predators, looking for mates, doing everything that an animal has to do in order to survive and propagate its genes, and. I don't think it would have to be conscious at all. I, I think it could all be done uh, in the way that a computer would do it. I mean, when you talk to Siri or, or Alexa, they sound conscious, but you know they're not. Um, and for, a, for an animal to survive with, with a nervous system, it doesn't, it seems to me, need to be conscious. And uh, I'm really glad I'm conscious and I, I'm pretty sure you are as well. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, think, I think other yeah. people. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a solipsist. Uh, but but, but I, I, do, I, um, I, I do find it a bit of a mystery why, why we have consciousness at all.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I, mean, I think it's, as I wrote somewhere, it's the one thing in this universe that can't be an illusion, including the universe. I mean, this universe could be a simulation on some alien hard drive. Or I really. think Descartes said something similar. Yeah.
1: Although I got 40 emails last week that says we've proved that that's not true, and I don't necessarily yeah. buy those emails either.
0: That's exactly what the simulators would say if you were... <laughs> uh, uh, but I mean, consci- consciousness as the, just the felt sense that something is going on. The, the fact that there's an experiential quality, whatever this is, whether you're a brain in a vat, whether you're in the matrix, whether consciousness is being produced by information processing in your head, uh, as seems reasonable to believe, consciousness is always the first fact before any other facts can be discussed. And it's also the, the most important thing in the universe. It's the only thing that makes at least, in my view, it's the only thing that makes the universe important. The fact that the lights are on, the fact that it's possible for the lights to be on. If you told me there's a universe somewhere that's got stars and planets, but the the constants of of, of nature are tuned just a little awry so that conscious life is impossible, that is a deeply uninteresting universe. And its consciousness is the only ground for any moral dimension to our lives too. And yet. I, I'm with you in feeling that it's not clear that it does anything. It's not clear how it would be selected for, because in, I mean, if you just look at your own experience, everything that you're conscious of, anything that you seem to be consciously deciding, or you know, any place where it seems that consciousness is necessary to integrate information behaviorally, you know, to have a complex goal, say, for someone to say to you, well, you we should really get to the Orpheum Theater at 8 o'clock to, to hear this talk, for, you, for that to become a behavioral plan, let's just say that that is, in fact, something that can only be done consciously in apes like ourselves. Still, it's not clear why, well, it's, as you said, it's not clear that that should be the only way that it, it gets accomplished, and, and we could easily build robots, one presumes, that could that could do these things without it being something that it's like to be those robots. But even in our own case, if consciousness really is just what it is at the level of our neurophysiology, it's only effective in virtue of what it is at the level of neurophysiology. So the fact that there's a, a, a subjective side to it doesn't matter. I mean the fact that, it, that you're having this experience now, which again is the, is the most important thing in, in, in anyone's life, the experience side of it is not what is actually behaviorally effective if, in fact, consciousness is yeah. has, a, has, a, has the other face, which is its neurophysiology and its information processing dynamics.
2: Nicholas Humphrey suggested that um, the, uh, one of the most important things we have to do is to second-guess other people. We, we, we swim through a sea of, a, a, mm. a social sea. We, we, we have to make our way through very, very complicated relationships with other people, and we have to second-guess what they're going to do. All the time, we're, we're having to predict how this other person is going to react. And so he postulates what he calls the inner eye, which is looking inwards to yourself as an aid to second-guessing what the other person might do. You need this extra sense organ mm. um, to, to help you to predict the behavior of the other person. I still don't think that
0: right, that, that does it. I, somehow I wouldn't have been as surprised by the last presidential election if I was doing that <laughs> correctly.
1: Yeah, and I was here before the election and predicted that there was no way Trump could win. And as somebody who occasionally pretends to read minds and make predictions for a living, boy, was that a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think what Richard's talking about is something that I've heard elsewhere is the, in, the intentional stance. What if it's the case that consciousness, which gives rise to this sense of self, uh, in a way that goes beyond mere self-reflection and consideration, leads us to connections with other people. And this is what provides the evolutionary benefit. But it also leads to something else that I thought we'd talk about, which is tribalism. Mm. This, our lives as individuals become merged, obviously, with our family. We have this immediate connection to our family, and then we extend this, and we extend the definition of family, and we begin to form tribes. And there was a time and a place where that may have been the best thing. Is it the case that... I mean, obviously, these could all be side effects of just what happened, and and I would think that I'd be okay with the idea that consciousness and tribalism and everything are are side effects of what happened. You know, there doesn't have to be a guiding hand. But in the process, viewing it from natural selection, what were the benefits of tribalism, and have we actually outgrown them, or are we maybe taking a step back?
0: Well, if I'm not mistaken, Richard, I think altruism, the, the, the evolutionary rationale for altruism, Really, only makes sense in a tribal context. So that, like, one of one of the silver linings of internecine tribal conflict was that in-group altruism got selected for. Um, I don't know if there's any recent work on that, but that's that was my reading of things. Yes, now, that's not to say that we're stuck with we're stuck with tribalism as the only rationale for altruism, but in terms of how apes like ourselves became as altruistic as we are, it's thought that that competition among tribes was um, the basis Well, the... I suppose
2: a Darwinian view of altruism would go back to a time when we lived in small tribal groups. Uh, and um, there were two things about living in these small groups. What, one was that you were completely surrounded by kin, cousins, second cousins, siblings, nephews and nieces, and so on. And so there would have been a Darwinian incentive to altruism towards anybody you meet, because anybody you meet is a member of your own village, your own tribe, your own, your own clan. And the second thing, the, the other Darwinian engine, motor of altruism is reciprocation. And reciprocation depends, or largely depends upon, encountering the same individual again and again. Yeah. And that again happens within the village, within the, within the band, within the tribe. So... Um, there would have been a selection pressure in favor of within group altruism and out group hostility xenophobia uh, so we we can we can expect that there, that there should be this tendency to despise the out the out group and to be altruistic and cooperative with the familiar in group and that could be defined as people you 've known on your life people you were brought up with people who look like you. Mm. There are all sorts of ways in which the rule of thumb for how to behave could have latched on. And it's a pretty depressing outlook when we've moved out of our tribal past and moved into big cities where we're no longer in small tribal groups. But we still have the same rules of thumb which work, and that is a good thing. We have a rule of thumb that says just in general, be nice to anybody, empathize with, with any, anybody, because in the distant past, anybody would have been defined as your own tribe, your own, your own clan, your own kin group, your own reciprocation group.
1: So yeah. I wonder if it's to our benefit to... There's a couple of potential ways to go there. One is to get everybody to realize that everybody still is part of our clan, that we, we are one human clan. Hmm. Uh, I don't know... I don't have the magic solution to to end the various divisions, uh, but the others uh, may, maybe to get people to recognize that they can be a part of a number of different glands that overlap. Is this is how we build societies? Right. You know, I care more about my immediate family than I do my neighborhood, but I care more about my neighborhood than than I do you know the broader world. But I can't diminish my my caring for things outside my scope to zero because we know that we have an an impact on each other, even at great, great distances. Peter Singer wrote a book called The Expanding Circle, yeah, yeah. Uh, in which he starts out by
2: talking about this, this in-group, kin, kin group, and then talks about the altruism broadening itself out to um, wider and wider and wider groups. And he would, would like that to include non-human animals as well, uh, that, that psychologically we can extend our tribal loyalty to... Um, all sentient beings.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: There were some folks out front with pictures of both of you actually lobbying for something along those lines.
3: Oh,
0: yeah. Which, which, was, which was nice.
1: <laughs> no, I, think,
0: uh, I think Singer's heuristic is, is the right one, that, that moral progress is generally synonymous with expanding the circle of moral concern to not just your family, not just your society, not just your race, not just your nation, but outward, outward, to the point where ultimately you're concerned about the suffering of conscious creatures insofar as they can suffer. So it's not just humans. And it's if, it, if we discovered that pigs suffered much more than cows, well, then it would be appropriate to be more concerned about pigs than cows. And, and it's just that we actually care about the experience of conscious systems. Yeah.
1: So a- as we do this, it-, it seems to me that there's an issue that we, we probably will t- talk about here. Um, no surprise to anybody, we're all pretty much politically on the left, we are godless heathens, we are atheists, we are secularists, and, and so are you, most of you. A- a good chunk. And. The in the, in the atheist community, the secular communities at large, have been growing leaps and bounds. The nuns are one of the fastest growing demographics. And because of that, on occasion, there is infighting. And I kept reminding people as I'd go out and talk, you know, try to listen charitably, try to mirror what people are saying, try to see nuance, but also recognize that these are natural growing pains. That It may in, may in fact be viewed as a good thing that there are little divisions, because at one time, the atheist community wasn't big enough to be able to afford risking any okay. division, the same way we, we did with tribes. But this idea of I'm concerned and there's a circle that radiates out produces, to me, a problem where someone else's circle is different, but they view me as if my circle should be the same. This, this fallacy of relative privation—that the thing that's most important or, or the greatest risk for them should also be the greatest risk and importance for me—and I can tell you that while you know Islam may be the the motherload of bad ideas and the greatest threat to freedom worldwide, it's not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily the greatest threat in my living room or in my neighborhood or even in Austin, Texas. How, and you guys have both experienced this, as have I, where someone gets, someone on the left, in the atheist movement, has a mission, has, this is, this is my pet thing. And anybody who doesn't fall completely in line with that gets labeled as if they're an enemy rather than that they're just not as pure an ally as they might be. How do we start, or do we start? Do we, do we just allow the divisions... To continue, or do we start building bridges and t- talking about this issue that what 's important to you is important to me too, but it may not be as important to me because i 'm dealing with this I think you put that very well and right? i
2: i mean it, it's a it 's sort of ridiculous in a way that somebody can 't see that just because we different m- people concentrate on different things that doesn 't mean that we uh, don't think other thing's important. I mean, exactly the point you've made. There are lots of different issues around which we can which we can tackle. Some of us are interested in one, some of us are interested in the other. We don't have to despise people just because they're preoccupied with a different one from us.
0: But I think you're also talking about disagreements in the atheist community. Yeah. So, so I, what I'm hearing, or what I've noticed among atheists that concerns me Is is really seems like a... the consequence of identity politics on the left bleeding into the atheist community, or or insofar as the atheist community skews left, it it inherits a lot of the the, um, the, the, the very liberal and, in, in many cases, regressive convictions of people on the left who think that to criticize Islam is tantamount to racism, say, and they don't really think too clearly about that, or that the only reason why, as an atheist, you could be more concerned about Islam than Anglicanism, say. That that has to be at some level of an expression of your own hostility and xenophobia toward Arabs or, or people yeah, from the Middle Yeah, why do you East. guys hate brown people so much? Exactly.
1: That's, I mean, th- this is the sort the of oversimplification. Yeah. I remember it goes back. you know, why do you hate the troops and all, all these other things that were done in a humorous sense, and now they're being done in a serious sense because you two aren't as ideologically pure as I am, or
0: you're not as ideologically pure as Sam. And, you know, but it's not—it's not just a difference of emphasis. It is a, to put it charitably, a difference of opinion about what it means to focus on, in this case, on Islam. But I, you know, in my view, it's just—it's complete confusion about the, the nature of the focus and and what it is that would cause someone like me or Richard to to be more worried about jihadism than. You know, what the Scientologists are up to or the Mormons. You shouldn't have said that.
2: I mean, I'm worried about many things, but I'm worried about some things more than others. And I accept that you might be worried about other things more than others. And
0: they're all important. We're also just confused by the label of atheism. That's why I think atheism is not always the best construct here. If you're. Rather than think of promulgating atheism, just think of opposing dangerous, bad ideas. And and that will, of necessity, put you in opposition to many, many, many religious ideas. But some religious ideas aren't all that dangerous, or they're not all that well-subscribed or you just you, you barely encounter them ever, right? And so then so you can't really prioritize those. I am tending to prioritize the ones that are showing up in the news every day and are clearly, absolutely just, there can be no doubt about this, and yet there seems to be doubt everywhere. They're clearly the proximate cause of some of the most horrific human behavior and it is behavior that would not happen for another reason. I and mean, this is the, another source of confusion. People think that the world is just filled with bad people who would do bad things anyway, and they're just finding religion as a pretext, right? So the, the Christian scientist who is not giving insulin to her diabetic daughter would do something equally crazy anyway yeah. without religion. That, there's no reason to think that. and That's that's
2: spot on, absolutely right.
1: And by the way, if you guys, we're probably pretty close to maybe bringing the house lights up a little bit and lining up to begin questions as we kind of talk about this. But what you're saying, I I agree, It, it would be just like saying that somehow or another... The people who hate homosexuals just managed to all be part of the Westboro right. Baptist Church rather yeah. than the Westboro Baptist Church cultivated these ideas. Yes. Uh, well, somehow well. or another, you know, the, 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 when we were putting labels on things earlier, it was in the United States. Uh, it's it's not, uh, not all Republicans are racists or are white supremacists, yeah. but pretty much all white supremacists align themselves with the Republican Party. So you it would be silly to think that there's not something there that at least waters these ideas and maybe nourishes them as well.
4: Yeah.
0: And, and the people tell us ad nauseum these are the reasons why they're doing these things. It's not, they're not hiding their motives. So it, it, it takes a heroic act of self-deception and, and willful ignorance to say, despite everything these people are saying, despite the fact that they can point to the passage in the book yeah. That justifies the behavior. The behavior is coming from some other source entirely that has nothing yeah. to do with, with their the, account. The suggestion that these are just
2: evil people who will find a way to let their evilness come out, and if it's not religion, it's something else. They're not that evil. They actually, they're righteous people. They think they're righteous. They think they're doing good. They think they're doing the will of their god, uh, exactly. and they think they're going to go
0: to heaven for it. They don't think they're evil. Well, but worse than that they're actually not evil yes. in those because, because they're just wrong. Yes. Right? And, and, <laughs> and, and, quite right. right.
1: So I, I think we're at the time where we can start lining up for questions, and, and until the lights come up and people start taking their places, uh, I'll kind of ramble on this point just a bit more. And that is that I think we can talk about the origins of religion, but I'm more concerned with how religion spread, which is why what I focus on, I don't necessarily go after a specific religion all the time. And, of course, I'll get the email that says, why are you afraid to go after Islam? Screw you, I've made Muslims cry on my show. It's, it, at least one. Uh, but I want to get to the, to the crux of where these bad ideas are coming from, which is why I'm constantly advocating for skepticism, critical thinking, uh, encouraging humanism. Uh, because if you build the sort of communities that allow people to not feel alone and yet encourage decency and reasonableness, I think you will have a platform that could rival what religions have done because they co-opt families. They not only take people who are fearful of things already, thank you, and give them the sort of uh, belief that they can get rid of their fears, but they actually encourage fictional fears that only they can cure in order to build their sense of community. It's the, the line which I've said many times that people would say, you know, that uh, religion poisons you and then offers you the cure, but I think it's worse than that. Religion convinces you you're poisoned when you're not and then offers you the homeopathic remedy. That's... <laughs> But if we can't get people past the fear, the one question I get asked, one of the questions I get asked most frequently is, when you replace when you get rid of religion, if you were to have the fantasy world that you want, Matt, and there's no more rationality, there's no more religion, what do you replace it with in order to give people hope?
2: Science, art, poetry, music, love, sex.
1: On that note, especially with sex in the mix there, I, I think we're uh, good to go for questions. And it's, it's still a little difficult for us to, to see folks up here. I'm going to start uh, on the right, if you could. Questions, by the way. Hey, this is... Oh, now I can see. Uh, this is where I get to be like the asshole that I am on the TV show. Thank you. And that is, uh, I will hang up on your ass in a heartbeat if I have to. Uh, questions in and a question mark. They don't start with a dissertation or your life story. If you have a question for the full panel... yeah. Uh, if you have a question for all of us, we will do our best to be succinct. If you have a question for a specific person, just say so. Uh, and please just start with your name. We may not remember, it, but we'll try. Please, sir.
5: Hey, I'm David.
1: Hi, David. And uh, my question is for Sam.
5: All right, so my goal is to get you to nuance your opinion on free will. So in each moment, we have a neurophysical chemical moment, uh, you know, which is our, our, our neurons, our, our body, etc., and a moment within consciousness phenomena. Now, there is a kind of next universe canyon between what a neurophysical chemical moment is and what a moment of consciousness is in in phenomena. So within consciousness, we experience freedom. For example, I can decide to put my hand to the right instead of to the left. So
0: that's where we disagree, uh, but okay. uh,
1: As you said, you know... uh, And this is sounding like a dissertation. I will tell uh, you this. Consciousness is the... I, I will tell you this, and then, and then you got to get to a question. Uh, Sam and I are doing three more events over the next couple of months, and free will be, will be something that we at least discuss in private, because I, I think I've got a nail in the coffin for this, but okay. get to the question. So Sam,
5: you say consciousness is the only thing we can be sure of. So because we have an experience within consciousness, which is next universe different from a neurophysical chemical moment, because we experience freedom in, in, in consciousness, hand here as opposed to there, do we have to take this feeling of freedom seriously? There we go.
0: Okay, well, this is what's especially seditious about my argument against free will, because most people think we have this experience of freedom, and the trouble is that it's very hard to map that onto the, the, the mere causality we see in the universe, and that's, that's the mystery of free will. But when I look closely at my own experience, I don't see evidence of freedom. So, so for instance, my experience of answering this question now, of of hearing myself speak, like my struggling to get to the end of this sentence, and (laughs) my ability to do it or not do it based on the neurochemistry, my uncertainty about whether it is yet a grammatically complete sentence, (laughs) the little stumble you just heard in my mouth uh, on that last Can't word, forget
5: the sentence. Okay. Uh, no, but every, decide to put your hand. no, no. no. Every,
0: absolutely everything in my experience is compatible with the absence of free will. And if I, if you, to take your example of deciding to move my right hand or my left, I could deliberate about this for a year. <laughs> and. If I went back, no matter how many times I went back and forth, and no matter, I could, have, I could write a dissertation about why it should be the right, and then at the last second say, fuck it, I'm an existentialist. And, I, you know, and the, the proximate cause of that most voluntary behavior would in every case be mysterious, subjectively mysterious. It would be pushed to the fore, and I, as the conscious witness of the process, would be a spectator. I would witness the final efficacious product of neurophysiology and why it was one thing rather than the other, why it came at precisely that moment and not a moment before, why I just said this last sentence and didn't stop 20 seconds ago. All of that is mysterious. No, no, no. No, no, okay, no, no, you're done. Reality. That's for in Julie. Some, someone, reality well...
5: Reality th- and consciousness...
1: There's a
0: ton of people in line, and we're not going to do a debate. The, I'm going to the, move. This over may to... come up again because this is a this is a concern of many people. But, and, but thank and you, and you can question.
1: rest easy in the sense that I am, a la Dennett, a compatibilist who, who disagrees with Sam and thinks he's actually a compatibilist. He just doesn't know it. But <laughs> we'll, we'll tackle that some other day. Yes, sir.
4: Hi, this is Armin Navabi from Atheist Republic. Um, hey, Hi. I can recognize you. <laughs> um, Sam mentioned that, um, I don't know if he still thinks that, but atheist is a word that shouldn't even exist, Um, just like the word non-golfer. But if golf was forced on us, wouldn't it make sense for us to have a word like non-golfer for non-golfers to to find each other and unite against people that are pushing golf on us? And. (laughs) And you, and you mentioned, well, we should fight all bad ideas, but some people want to focus on animal rights. Some people want to focus on racism. Some people want to focus on God. Isn't it, some, you know, if our passion is to fight one bad idea and God is the biggest of bad of all bad ideas, doesn't it make sense for us to have a label to have the atheist experience, American Atheists or Atheist Republic as ways to find each other and make a movement out of it? Well, it's not that it's a
0: mystery as to why we have the label. I understand that, it, that people find it, it to be a political necessity uh, or might find it to be a political necessity. I, I just don't, and I see a downside to it. And this is a place where I think Richard and I may disagree as a matter of, of strategy or, or tactics. Um, I just see it as ultimately— I mean, yes, yes it, is, it is a shocking fact that not believing in God and being public about that disbelief is a more or less a deal breaker politically, at least in the United States. I don't know about in Canada. Uh, That's just, that's totally unacceptable. And we should marshal some kind of political response to that because the people who don't believe in God are, it's not an accident, some of the most Informed and intelligent people in, in any society uh, because they're just following the evidence. So, so the fact that that's stigmatized is a problem, and it's a political problem, but I, I just think you can, you can fight for science, you can fight for evidence, you can fight for reason, you can fight for logical coherence, you can fight for all of these things without ever labeling yourself. And I, I just have this fundamental distrust of identity politics at this point, and I, I don't think we win by by
4: forming our own identity. Thank you. My name is Barry. Um, this is a question I'm
3: directing at Sam and, and Matt uh, because we've already got a pretty good sense of what Richard thinks of it from his uh, book, Unweaving the Rainbow. Uh, the question is, do you feel that it is inevitable
2: that the humanities, will be hostile to the sciences? Uh, And if so, you might not agree with that, but if so, so,
3: what
1: can be done about it? Why and what can be done about it? I don't don't necessarily think that there's any reason to suppose that there's a necessary hostility. Um, I'd like to think that the more we understand the universe, the better information we have across the board, um, that this would improve both the sciences and the humanities.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, there's this famous notion of of the two cultures that I think we're in the process of outgrowing. I think more and more a a love of science. I mean, now I'm talking among well-educated people who are not being indoctrinated into one or another religious cult. Uh, but there's a love of science among people who are not themselves scientists is is more and more contagious. And it's just a myth. I mean, apart—I'm sure you can find some scientists who don't care about the rest of culture and and would disparage the humanities. But um, for the most part, scientists are—they love art and music and fiction as much as anyone else. They just don't love intellectual pretension and scientific ignorance, and the marriage of those two. So it's really what postmodernism did to our intellectual lives, where you had some part of every university committed to the idea that there's no such thing as truth. Yeah. And that, that drove a wedge. And I think we're still recovering from that. But it just comes down to not pretending to know things you don't know. Amen. So, you know, was, was Shakespeare Francis Bacon? probably not but i don't know right so it's like it's like it's it's not why pretend to know for sure that that he he was francis bacon when the evidence is is non-existent that's a, a question of history that's a question of i guess for scholars of literature it's a, it's also a question of biology really you know like which ape wrote those plays <laughs> uh, so there is no real boundary between in my view between science and valid claims in the humanities and even journalism. I mean, these are just we're just having a fact-based discussion about the world.
1: You know, and I'll, I'll kind of leverage this to go back and add an addendum to your uh, response to Armand, where he had mentioned that, you know, why not go after God? Because God is the, most, the biggest, most pervasive bad idea. Uh, I'm not sure that's the case. It may be the, the most pervasive bad idea is that you are a reasonable judge of reality. That may be the foundational, you know, that we all assume that, oh, well, I wasn't fooled by this and I wasn't fooled by that, so I surely am not being fooled by this other thing, and yet we are. Hmm. The second you think you're not being fooled, it's already too late. Yes.
3: Hi, my name is Robin Bostrom, and uh, thrilled to be here tonight. So in your book, uh, Waking Up, Sam, and this question is directed to you, you touched upon the usefulness of psychedelics in introducing people to new avenues of experience. And as our nation prepares to legalize the use of marijuana, what do you think is the, going to be the aggregate benefit in having people introduced to these new experiences from a drug such as marijuana? Uh,
0: well, it could, it could be a terrible mistake. I, <laughs> I mean, this is, I should say, you know, drug use can go many different ways, right? And it's, it's not crazy to be concerned about a society that is just using drugs ad libitum of every sort uh, unconstrained by any prohibition. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to see how we got to prohibition. Now, I think prohibition is the wrong, really always the wrong answer, because it has all of these external effects that are terrible. It creates organized crime and black markets, and creates a total lack of awareness that, quote, drugs, are very different from one another, and some are addictive and, and just intrinsically harmful, and some aren't addictive and can be incredibly useful. So there's a we we're just misled by this one word, drugs. So what we should have is a society that, that prioritizes education around the pharmacology of, of consciousness, and you know, the, you know, is it good to drink alcohol, and, and 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 who shouldn't drink alcohol, and how much alcohol is too much, and. What are the health effects of drinking alcohol regularly, and and that should that should extend to everything in our lives, and we should have a again an honest conversation about what seems seems good for human beings to be doing, and it is it's clear that almost any substance can be misused, and marijuana can definitely be misused. You know, you can smoke too much and do more or less nothing else but smoke, and that's not, you know, that's no no one's conception of a a life. Fully actualized, Uh, so, uh, or at least it shouldn't be. Uh, So, but I mean, I think, but but prohibition is a disaster, and it was a disaster for alcohol, and we realized that a hundred years ago, and yet we are still struggling to to learn the same lesson with with other compounds.
1: I expected much more applause uh, when it was mentioned that about legalization, and I don't, I don't, no, 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 you're going to. I just didn't know if you were being polite to the person as a question, if you're all baked. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah.
2: Hi, Hi uh, my name is Randy. Um, my question is for Sam. I wanted to know what role meditation has played in your mental health. I guess have you been more resilient to depression or anxiety because it seems like you're always kind of being attacked by somebody, either Batman or <laughs> on your or having Charles Murray on your podcast. Because I'm at a point where I'm kind of done with antidepressants, psychotics, mood stabilizers. We'll get there. Um, I just, So I want to try something new. So what's your take on meditation as a mental health like, treatment?
0: Thank you. Well, I, th- I think it is. it can be incredibly useful. I-, I think there are certain people who probably shouldn't go on intensive silent meditation retreats. So I, I think it's, it's not... I wouldn't recommend the most intense experiences of meditation for everybody, and, and there are people who find, you know, going into silence for a week or a month, you know, destabilizing, and that's, and it's a tiny percentage of people. But you should be aware that that it's possible to have a bad experience doing a lot of meditation. But no, meditation is. I mean, the kind of meditation I recommend is just learning to pay much more careful attention to what it's like to be you. And when you pay attention, you begin to notice all of the ways in which you are suffering unnecessarily. So it is, there's a very, uh, the universe didn't have to be this way, but it just so happens there is a direct connection between seeing more of what is actually happening in your own mind and ceasing to suffer in In many of the ways that are that are unnecessary and and so it's uh, it, you know it, it is the honestly it is the most important thing i've ever learned, but it's not necessary to learn most other things right it's not it, it is it is kind of orthogonal to almost everything else we care about intellectually I mean it's, it's not that i don't suffer in all of the ordinary ways i've suffered before i I, I learned to meditate but the half-life of suffering, the half-life of, of something like anger or anxiety or embarrassment or fear or whatever, whatever the negative mindset is, it, it's, it's cut way, way down, and, the, and also the, the behavioral consequences of those negative emotions. The door is closed to those. I mean, when you think of the difference between being angry for 10 seconds and then actually letting it go and being angry for an hour. Right. It's it's an enormous difference because in that hour you can get up to doing all kinds of life deranging things on the basis of anger and feel good about doing those things. Right. Because, you know, you damn well should be doing those things because you're pissed. And so so just just shortening the time course of of all of these negative states is is an enormous benefit. And and meditation is, is a great tool for that.
1: Although, although sometimes when I'm angry, that's when I'm most productive. Because, it, it, yeah, well, but, you you but, but I was wondering. You know, it, I,
0: right? I know the question was
1: directed to Sam, but but just for my curiosity, I don't know, Richard, have you explored meditation in the way that Sam's talking about at all? I did once. I did once do a
2: course in uh, transcendental meditation. Hmm. I'm sorry to say, it did absolutely nothing for me. <laughs> well,
1: well it, it, uh, on a somber note. I would argue that Transcendental Meditation, at least in some sense, killed Doug Henning, which will make me pissed off at Transcendental Meditation, at least until I can meditate to let go. But, yes?
6: Hi, my name is Leah, and I just want to say welcome so much to Sam and Richard, both to coming back to Vancouver. Um, And I would just say, on meditation, Sam recommended that I do a 10-day meditation retreat, and all I can say is it did wonders for my marriage, that I was quiet for 10 days. (laughs) So... Um, My question is future-focused and in two parts. Um, So you had me at hello with atheism. You have had me at hello with uh, your book, Waking Up on Consciousness. I very much agree that it just sure looks to be a lot better to focus on how we can actually just be better and nicer and focus on those qualities that are measurable And I have a question, the first part is, um, what are the biological or societal uh, hurdles or roadblocks that we need to get past in our evolution as humans to do more of that? I already agree that, you know, religion hasn't helped, but what are the other sort of case studies that you can pull up biologically or culturally that we could use to make this faster and secondly, um, it strikes me that resource, the second part is resource allocation has been a challenge, and that's been um, one of the drivers of tribalism, is that in the, in the quest for resources, we've not been nice to each other. Given the abundance that we are seeing that technology is creating and sort of the democratization of that abundance, will that solve some of these problems and mm-hmm. leapfrog us ahead in evolution?
0: I find your yeah. questions yeah. as long and leading as mine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, briefly, I mean there's a, there's a lot there, but I think the one of the greatest problems we have, and there's an obvious this connects directly to what, what Richard was saying about evolution the evolution of tribalism, our moral our morality, most people's morality is anchored to social emotions and, and quintessentially moral emotions that are not good guides for Living a good life or building a good society. I mean, emotions like disgust, right? I mean, so some people find homosexuality disgusting or the idea of gay sex disgusting, and that is the end of the argument for them, right? It's like that. That is that is that is enough to pass laws on in a theocracy. That's enough to justify throwing people off the top of buildings. So, disgust is a very bad guide for, for morality and. Desire is a bad guide as well. I mean, we have, we have things like lust and disgust and fear and you know, xenophobia, um, which is, you know, just fear in, in a certain context. We have to be able to, to have a, a reasoned conception of the good life, both personally and collectively, that gets beneath these ape-driven, limbic arousal non-arguments, which is how all of our moral thinking gets coded Psychologically, and that's, that's just it's a problem. We get, you know, you can see every conversation about a, a charged issue leading people to get emotionally hijacked in the midst of the conversation, and then they're not processing arguments anymore. And so we have to find mechanisms to get around that. And it, I mean, on the final question on, on just resource allocation, one of these moral emotions that that we have, if you if you imagine a world of real abundance, like a world where, you know, we have, we've we built the right AI that's just pulling wealth out of the, the atmosphere, and no one really has to work anymore, right? Because we we literally have machines that can build machines, that can build machines that are all powered by sunlight, that do everything better than we can. Now, why wouldn't that be some kind of utopia? Well, it wouldn't be a utopia because we have these very weird emotions, or many of us do, that make it seem like, it would be wrong to spread the wealth around. It would be right, like, we, most people are living as though they want to live in a world where there's a few trillionaires living in compounds ringed by razor wire and everyone else is sort of starving to death. You know, It's like a winner-take-all scenario. And so we have to find a new ethic whereby people are no longer, their, their, their purchase on existence is no longer justified by, by doing profitable work that other people will pay them for. I mean, we have, in a world of true abundance, you shouldn't have to work to justify your life. You should be, you should be free to enjoy the wealth of the world. And, that's, and, and if we're going to get to that place, we have to change our ethics around that.
5: Hi, I'm Kumaran, um, my name is Kumaran. Um, quick question, uh, mainly to Sam, but I guess it applies to others as well. Uh, You've talked a little bit about how you've gotten some strange bedfellows by some of your views on Islam, for example, have resulted in people that you may not agree with that are essentially just xenophobic, sort of following you and becoming sort of part of your fan base or whatever you'd call it. And similarly, you wrote a letter to a couple of feminists a few years ago that got in an argument with you that has been re-quoted pretty extensively by people in sort of the more red pill, kind of crazy men's movement crowd. How do you think about those things? In terms of, I, can, I know that you don't agree with those actual views espoused there, but you, you know, especially in the world of social media, you start getting yourself, you know, it's hard sometimes where they, the tail can wag the dog over time. I'm, if
0: people. I'm embarrassed to say, I don't even remember what you're referring to in terms of the, the letter to feminists. Yeah. Oh, was, it, was this my blog post, I'm not the sexist pig you're looking for? Yes,
5: exactly. That okay. was it.
0: Um, yeah.
5: That was it. Okay.
0: Well, yeah, it's just you—you you can't fully explain yourself and close the door to every possible misrepresentation of your your utterances in every single utterance, right? So you get the like you just you can't condense a book into a paragraph, and you can't condense a paragraph into a single sentence every time. I mean, maybe maybe you can occasionally do it, but it's just you, if people are determined. To take your words out of context in a way that is designed to mislead people as to what they actually meant in context, there is no way to to prevent that. I'm just convinced that it's it's impossible to prevent that. Now, I I can be much more careful than I've been in some—and I am more careful than I was in some of my earlier books now in general, because I'm less interested in writing something that's provocative and entertaining, and I'm more interested in not Experiencing this this deluge of of misrepresentation, so I'm I'm, I I am more careful than I used to be, but it's it's still impossible. And so it's it's not um, I I I can't take it seriously if somebody creates some meme that completely misrepresents my view, and then some Nazi nutcase likes it. uh, I don't know what to do with that.
1: so Richard's dealt with this with regard to the fleas and your detractors. How much attention do you pay to the people who are saying negative things about you or or trying to misrepresent what you've said and versus how much do you let your words stand on their own? Well, Sam is absolutely right, of course, that, that it's, it's extremely
2: um, hard to condense a, p- a paragraph down to 144 words, or whatever it is, the characters. Um, and... In some cases, misunderstanding with hindsight can be understood. You can see where where the misunderstanding came from. In other cases, I suspect there's a kind of active searching for the opportunity to misunderstand, um, active searching for offence. I think there are offence junkies who just love to be offended. (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with Sam that, that, that we have to be, to be careful. You can't rely upon people interpreting your words in the way that you intended them to be inter- interpreted. And you, can, you must have to expect that quite a lot of people are going to misunderstand, in some cases, possibly even deliberately
0: misunderstand,
2: which is sad.
0: This is why the, okay. the principle of charity is so important. If you actually want to understand somebody's position, then you will always be interested in their efforts to clarify it, right? But what we're noticing in our discourse, politically especially, is people don't really want to understand your position. They want to catch you saying something that can be construed uh, in the worst possible way and then hold you to it. And then they claim to understand what you think better than you do. Right, they they pretend to be mind-readers.
1: That's... among the many things that I, I caution people about is don't pretend you can read people's minds or their motivations. Uh, even those of us who pretend to do it on stage or we're, we're just fake and we're not as good at it. I used to toil over this, and it would basically what I what I've stopped doing by means of a solution is I pretty much don't read any comments that come in on YouTube. Um, maybe a couple over the first day or so, just to make sure I didn't like post a video that didn't have audio or you know the famous my left ear loved this because I didn't. You know, convert the, the single channel to mono. Uh, but for me, the line's really simple. I've stated my position. Somebody either didn't understand it or found fault with it. If there's fault, I'll keep going back and forth as long as somebody's making a reasonable case for what they think is wrong with it. Because that's a debate. That's what I do. If I've explained it and explained it again, and now it's just getting in the way of me actually getting work done and reaching the people who already understood this and may have understood the next five or six things, if it's getting in the way of me learning something from somebody else, if I'm just sitting there spinning my wheels, now it's no longer worth my time, because that person may not be reachable at all, but they're clearly not reachable by me right now, so I'm going to leave it for somebody else, because I've got better things to do most of the time. Uh,
4: thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Dan. I'm from Calgary. Um, Sam, I, I find your books, uh, your podcasts, and uh, your talks uh, um, are kind of like a torch of reason uh, for civilization uh, in some sense. Um, and I yeah, just wanted to first send our appreciation for that. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you.
4: Um, my, my questions to Richard and Sam. Uh, what was it like to stand on stage next to Christopher Hitchens?
2: I suppose he was the most eloquent speaker I ever heard, uh, had a, a magnificent voice, which he deployed beautifully, had amazing resources in terms of memory, in terms of quotations, in terms of historical allusions, um, reading, uh, I, I once wrote, if you are invited to have a debate against Christopher Hitchin's decline. <laughs> uh, but he was, even as he was, a ruthless uh, debater. Nevertheless, he was also very courteous, and he would go and have a drink with his victim after slaughtering him. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't agree with him about everything, um, but um, if you if you wanted to disagree with him, you better be well prepared with arguments, because he's a very very hard person to to argue against. A, a wonderful gentleman, much missed.
0: Yeah. yeah I, I, obviously, he was incredibly articulate, and it was just it was. Amazing and incredibly fun, but also somewhat galling to hear someone speak exactly as he wrote. And uh, he was such a good writer. And the stories about him uh, apparently are true. He could just go, you know, and just type a thousand words and it wouldn't require any editing. And it would, that would be his next essay. So, um, Who would he, dare edit? He was am- yeah, but he, he, even he wouldn't dare edit, apparently. He just got it right the first time. So I actually I just, as you were asking the question, I, I just recalled that he had said he had made the point I was just trying to, to make at great length about people pretending to know what you think better than you do and not actually wanting to hear your your, your position. And he said uh, he said he was. I'm going to butcher his quote, uh, even tr- trying to to remember it. But he he said he, he felt he was constantly surrounded by people who, in detecting your lowest possible motive, were convinced. They had found your only possible motive, and even that isn't that, that isn't quite right. But that's basically that. He, he was he, he was remarkably clear on just the, a, a breadth of issues that it was just amazing to consider. And and you you should read his books if you have, and read Hitch twenty two. Read God is not great if you have. Read, read Hitch twenty two to to understand what a. A life he led. I mean, the kinds of the people he met and the amount of fun he had. Uh, I mean, he loved this. I mean, I I am I'm perfectly happy to be here and talk to all of you. I it's an honor to be here, Uh, and it's it's always an honor to share the stage with Richard. But Hitch loved this experience. I mean, he he would just get on the road to talk to people, uh, and his love of it was was palpable. And so I, I I did one book tour and you know, as signing books, half the people who came up during that book tour were just expressing appreciation for Hitch. I mean, this is before he died, but his cancer was known. Uh, and it was amazing to be on the receiving end of, how, of that love for him and his work. And it was, it was, it was being driven by him because he really, he really loved this.
3: I Hi, I'm Aaron. Um, so Richard, in one of your books, you wrote about the, the moral zeitgeist and how morality has evolved through time. And um, Sam, in some of your recent podcasts, you've had Charles Murray and you've had Cass Sunstein on, you, on your show. And you've talked about polarization and groupthink and how... Uh, Today, especially in the world of social media and Amazon and news, so often our views are reinforced and self-fulfilling in their way. So I'm curious your thoughts on uh, the advancement of the moral zeitgeist in a time where we are constantly uh, reinforcing our own ideas and the tools that we have at our disposal to uh, cross boundaries there. And potentially, uh, if we are all digesting media, say, that is self-fulfilling, um, should government maybe have a role in helping advance this further, as that is a tool that is still uh, national, that is still across all people, potentially?
2: Well, I'm interested in the moral zeitgeist because people often talk about uh, religion as a necessary basis for morality, and I think that's fairly easily refuted by pointing out that uh, the current, not just deep morals, but little, little details, little uh, superficial details, like the amount of um, different kinds of prejudices that there are on things. These things change from decade to decade, uh, let alone from century to century. And this is sort of documented in books like Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature, where we are clearly getting better, getting nicer as the centuries go by. And this has nothing to do with religion. Uh, The the moral attitudes of somebody in 2017 label them as 2017 as opposed to just 50 years ago uh, when they would have been subtly different. There would have been more racism, more sexism, uh, and um, it it prompts the thought of what's going to happen in 50 years, 100 years' time, I I suppose. But the, 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 the moral zeitgeist changes in ways that, nothing to do with religion, it's hard to say what they are due to. It's tempting to use a phrase like something in the air, whatever that means, but it almost feels as though it is that, a sort of consensus of journalism and political discussion and legal cases and uh, books and dinner party discussions, discussions in pubs. We just kind of move on steadily in, and it pretty much in, in one direction. That's what I mean by the shifting
0: moral zeitgeist. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to behavioral economics. I think if you get the incentives right, even pretty mediocre people can behave really well. If the incentives are wrong, it takes an absolute moral hero to behave well. And, and, and we should want to design societies and systems and institutions where you don't actually have to wake up every morning and be you know, St. Francis of Assisi just to get through your day without killing somebody. Right? <laughs> and that's, and there, there are conditions where you basically have to be that. Per, you have to be a saint not to be absolutely vile. I mean, when you look at just how, how people have to live in maximum security prisons, the incentives there are all wrong. They're all pushing people toward most brutal tribalism, you know even if you're not a racist you have to align yourself with your race in a prison otherwise you're you're just going to be the victim of everyone right so uh, we we want systems and societies that are less and less like maximum security prisons and and we're still just trying to find our way toward to, to engineering those and and we we don't have a thousand years to get it right
2: hi my name's Blaine I'm very close to the microphone
0: Uh, I'm very excited to be here.
2: And uh, my question is for Richard, although I hope Sam may be tempted to add something as well. Uh, What are your thoughts on the Darwinian roots of creativity? And what neurological investigation might we do to learn how to program this into AI? I think it's remarkable how um, far... humanity in civilized uh, um, situations has advanced beyond what anyone would have predicted from our Darwinian roots. Um, We we are African apes naturally selected to survive on the African plains uh, as hunter gatherers. And somehow we, nowadays we produce Shakespeare and Beethoven and Great scientists, because there's a lot of creativity in science as, as well. Of course, we do seem to have brains that are laced with emergent properties, which go far beyond what naively you might think you'd need for Darwinian survival. And this builds cumulatively over generations, over generations of cultural evolution, where each each generation builds on the previous on the culture of the of the previous one. So that's not a Darwinian process. That's a kind of pseudo Darwinian process. It's, a, it's an evolutionary process that doesn't work by natural selection. At least not by genetic natural selection. It might work by some other kind, kind of cultural natural selection. Um, I, I d- it's not an easy thing to say that creativity, as we understand it today, would have had survival value. I would think that perhaps something a sort of brain a neurophysiological equivalent of what we call creativity today might have had survival value of a very different kind when we were subject to the cutting edge of natural selection.
1: Could it, would it be something in the, in the line of... I tend to look at creativity as, as a branching out from cleverness, of problem-solving, of non-lateral thinking and problem-solving. That clearly has an advantage, being able to find better ways to build a mousetrap. Um, wouldn't that? I mean, yes. I mean, having, having ideas, having hypotheses.
2: When you're, if if it's how how are we going to um, capture a buffalo? I mean, you you could you could be you could be sort of creative about that. You could have ideas. You could have, but um, you can make suggestions which are then knocked down. But so that's the kind of creativity. But somehow it's flowered into something so hugely greater than was ever directly
1: useful. Wouldn't it be terrifying? If, crea- if, if the way creativity has changed is actually the reason why we haven't tackled as many of the problems. We used to have to solve problems to survive, and now we're enjoying our creativity, which may be preventing us from solving the problems that are right in front of our face right now. Mm-hmm. I'm not knocking the arts. <laughs> Just thinking out loud.
0: Yeah, on the question of whether AI is going, I mean, AI is already doing it in, in rudimentary ways, I mean, in, in game playing, for instance, the, the, in chess or Go or, or uh, even in just basic video games that AI is is playing, it's finding creative moves that masters of those games composing recognizes. music in the style of Mozart. Yeah, yeah I mean, so I I, just, I don't think there's anything magical about our wetware as far as creativity goes. I think we'll 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 recognize it in in our intelligent systems insofar as they become intelligent.
1: So at this point, I'm, I'm going to be the bearer of bad news to some people. We have about five minutes left for Q&A, so that at the current pace, if you're more than like a person or two back in line, we are probably not going to get to you, but go ahead. Sam, I love you! Thank you. Thank you.
4: Thank you. That's
3: not a question. Uh, my name is Peter. Thank you for being here. Sam, you often speak about the importance of intuition, You had a podcast with Gavin de Becker that placed intuition front and center in a Mm -hmm. life-saving way for many people. And yet, in the person of President Trump, and this question is not about him, uh, we see the dark side of intuition, a man who says that his gut guides everything he does. And so that's got those of us who believe in intuition feeling a bit shaky. Can you please reassure us, from an evolutionary standpoint or otherwise, that intuition is uh, something uh, we can value? Thanks.
0: Well, it sort of depends on what you mean by intuition. For, for me, intuition is when you can break down your knowledge of a thing no further. The, the, the step you take is intuitive. So, what if I ask you, how is it that you understand that two plus two makes four? Right? So, at some point, you were taught this. But now you get it and you can't see it any other way. And if, when someone says 2 plus 2 makes 5, that doesn't feel right. No, it makes 4. Uh, you believe it. You, you know it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mathematical intuition at this point. It's, it's, it's basic. It's a basic building block of anything. If I told you, you know, I, I have a bag here and I put two oranges in it and then I put two more oranges in it. You'd, form a, you'd helplessly form a picture of, of there being four oranges in there. And if I told you, oh, no, there's, there's six in here, well, then you're, you would something didn't add up, right? And that's a, this is, you know, our knowledge of the world, our knowledge of causality, our knowledge of anything, our, our sense that the, the present bears some relationship, however lawful, uh, to the past, all of that is cashed out intuitively. And, and so you can't get away from intuition. Everything is built on it, from you know, logic, basic logic and mathematics on up. But we, we recognize that many of our intuitions are bad. They're faulty. We, don't, we, we have not been, we did not evolve to have common sense intuitions about the way the universe works, at, especially at the smallest scale of atoms, and especially at the largest scale of galaxies and especially across vast stretches of time when you're talking about billions of years. So our intu- we know there are areas where our intuitions are very, very bad, and we correct for them with other intuitions that allow us to correct for them, like, like mathematical ones. Where you know, I, I mean, This is an example I, I gave, I think, in my first book, but if I asked you, you know, if, we, if we had a newspaper the size of this stage and we could just fold it in half again and again and again, and we folded it in half a hundred times, how thick would that, the resulting block of newspaper, be? Well, most people, if you imagine it being the size of this stage, they imagine you would be able to fold it in half upon itself 100 times. And they imagine something maybe the size of a cinder block or you know, a very <laughs> large brick. But the, 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 you fold a newspaper in half 100 times, what you have in your hands is measured in light years, right? I mean, I forget the, the exa- exactly what it is, but it's, it's probably bigger than, than the galaxy. So that's a that's a very bad intuition we have there but the intuition that allows us to recognize that it's bad is that this very simple mathematical operation of of exponentiation actually works right that if you raise something to the the 100th power uh, 2 to the 100th power you know and multiply by the the thickness of a newspaper you you have a very big number so we we just intuition gets stigmatized as a as a word but science is the product of of intuition, and every, every gesture toward knowledge is the product of intuition at, at bottom. I, I did that paper folding demonstration when I gave the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures.
2: And uh, children come out, and you can't get more than seven folds. It, <laughs> it, 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 start, it stops there. But, but I mean, I, th- I think the, the, the purport of the question when, by mentioning Trump is that um, it, when you have two people whose intuition differs, then you can't argue by saying, well, that's my intuition, that's my intuition. I feel no. this, I feel no. that. That's what's really dangerous. And we want to get away from that kind of thing in public policy, in government. We do not want people who just do things because they feel that that's, it just feels right oh, to yeah, them. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But, Which is to say that you need an argument, but I, but... My, my noticing whether or not your argument runs through is again a, a based on logical intuition. That's you, a much more
2: sophisticated yeah. point. Uh, uh, um,
0: yeah, yeah, but, uh, but uh, one the that intu- president
1: Trump wouldn't get. By the way. No, no, yeah. <laughs> no, I wasn't
0: focusing on Trump. But
1: and, and we'll have, have to save that for another time too, because when when Sammy mentioned that you know intuition is is the foundation of, of logic, I think it's the reverse. <laughs> Uh, that logic and mathematics, these things, are we're making direct appeals to the facts of the universe. But we use critical thinking, we use this examination to train our intuition. You can get better.
0: Yeah, you can get better, but your but you intuition can't, yeah. can
1: approve. And so, when you have, as Richard was pointing, I have two people whose intuitions are in conflict. Uh, the solution is never going to be a third intuition. It's going to be let's make an appeal to the evidence and t- well, no, retrain no, no. everybody's. Interest. It
0: is. It's often a third intuition. I mean, often you bring in the mathematician who actually knows what he's talking about, and I, I wouldn't uh, call that intuition. Well, no, well, but but again, the intuition that again, intuition is is this this move that you can't justify without pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. I mean, if I said to you, well, justify this idea that events need causes, the sense that when something happens, there must be some causal explanation for it happening. That's an intuition that is deeply held, and that's the foundation of science. And there, ah. there are actually areas in science that, that seem to violate it, right? And, and then we're left actually not understanding what's going on, but we have other reasons to protect that area of confusion because you know, in, in, in the case of something like quantum mechanics, it just works. It's so it has such predictive utility that even though we don't have a clear, realistic picture of what's happening, we have to say, in some sense, this is the, the math works out and, and it's right. Uh, but th- these areas of science are l- are less than perfectly satisfying because we're we're struggling to form a picture of reality, and we and our our intuitions are we're, we don't have the right intuitions for it, and that's and that's not a surprise because we, after all, are apes. First, African apes. Yes, Africa. I think
1: there's a a lot more to explore there. Unfortunately, I've been told that our time with all you fine people is actually up for this evening. I I can't even do that. I'm getting directions from off the stage that we've reached the end of the evening. Well, that's high. Thank
6: you.
0: Thank you all for coming.
1: I don't know who killed I don't know who killed the lights, and and I, I'm sure that the two of you would like to see our beautiful audience again as we say good night. Uh, thank you so much, Vancouver. Yeah, thank thank you. you to Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Taburn yeah, Philosophy. You.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advance tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.